Welcome back, podcast listeners. Uh, we got a great story here today. Uh, we're talking with the couple of crews up in uh, Air Station Cape Cod about the rescue of the Atlantic Destiny. I think this happened about a month ago, or uh, within the last month or so, and uh, pretty, pretty good rescue up in some heavy seas, uh, gnarly weather, and uh, having to actually recover to a different country. So, uh, hey, we got you guys on the line. Can you say hi? Hey, how's it going? Hey, good, good. So who are we talking to? This is Lieutenant uh, Travis Christie, ASP2 Adam Vi, Lieutenant Junior Grade Craig Campbell, and uh, AET1 Philip Morales, Lieutenant Commander Brian Cuddley. Sweet. Hey, welcome, guys. We really appreciate uh, you coming on today. Um, we have certainly heard your heroics touted by our skipper here in Mobile and uh, I've heard other people talk about your case and um, really what we're looking for is just to get the who, what, where, when and and perspectives from all you guys. So uh, before we jump into that, if you guys want to give us a little background, Travis, we can start with you. Just, uh, you know, where you've been stationed, um, aviation career thus far, what your role, you know, is uh, wherever you're at and uh, general background, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, fine product of the uh, U.S. Coast Guard Academy, commissioned in 2011, went straight to flight school, got my wings in uh, 2013 and got orders up to Cape Cod. I uh, spent my time there for the first tour and then went down to Mobile and then returned back to Cape Cod um, this past summer. And I'm uh, working as the flight safety officer on the rotary wing side now. Lucky you, man. That's that, awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Excited to have you. Uh, Craig, what's your background? I went through Army flight school in 2009. I uh, spent about eight or nine years in the Army. In 2017, I applied to Coast Guard. In 2018, I was in. And uh, my first station is here at Cape Cod. That's awesome. That's a crazy case. I mean, probably not your first at Cape Cod, but it's a pretty gnarly case we're going to talk about today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you didn't want to go the Mighty 65 route, huh? The best, <laughs> best heel in the fleet. Nah, I'm just joking. Uh, that's not what I hear. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> big, big iron. Big iron's cool. What, what about you, Adam? Uh, yeah, joined Coast Guard in 2009. I was on an 87 out of Freeport, Texas. Um, uh, after school, I went to Detroit for my first tour, and here I am on my uh, second tour as a swimmer on Cape Cod. Nice. That's awesome. Um, welcome. And uh, you, Phil? Hello, sir. Um, Got it in 2004, uh, you know, went to uh, Pasigula to uh, the 210 and uh, Coast Guard Cutter Decisives. Went to the Airman Program in Mobile, went to A School, uh, got stationed in Cape Cod the first time, went to Kodiak, and then after Kodiak, went to Clearwater, and then came back to, Co- uh, to Cape Cod. And I've been here for six years so far. Gotcha. Uh, you know, so. That sounds awesome. You uh, you from the Northeast? Is that kind of hometown for you? Uh, no, um, I'm from Austin, Texas, but my family, my wife's family is from up here. So that's what led me up here. Yeah. You're like, sound like a transplant now. Go Red Sox. Yeah. I like it. Awesome. Welcome, <laughs> Phil. It's, thanks for being with us. And uh, well, we got one other person out there. Yeah, hey, this is Brian Cuddly. Uh, first of all, huge podcast fan, uh, long time listener, first time caller. Thanks, so, uh, man. <laughs> Thanks you guys are doing out. great work. But uh, yeah, I'm a Coast Guard Academy graduate, 2005, went straight down to flight school. Uh, then was out in San Diego for four years, over to Clearwater for four years. I uh, was a member of the 860 uh, Stand Division for four years in Mobile. And then I got orders up here a couple years ago to Cape Cod. Nice. Excited to have uh, y'all here. A lot of experience. You got some uh, ATC Mobile guys. Uh, Travis sounds like just about the most junior guy on the podcast. He's the you're the PIC for uh, <laughs> maybe the more interesting sixty flight. I'm not super familiar with the case. You couldn't find anybody better. Uh, I'm kidding, Ryan. Uh, yeah. Probably the more interesting one. <laughs> we were just there first for oh, the American. Nice. If uh, you don't count the one forty four. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So we can get uh, right into it. Let, let's talk about this case a little bit. I think it was uh, in March, right? Just a um, 50 days ago, something like that. And uh, is, is this an agency assist or I know it was like right near the border. Can you talk about uh, talk about it, frame it for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it was beginning of March and we had just come on duty for overnight, uh, overnight duty. And we had our normal training flight that we were just going to knock out a little pattern beater. And we knew from the duty brief that the, uh, the winds were, were pretty high, um, you know, not just sustained, but also gusts. And they're actually outside our training limits. So we were like talking about um, our desire to kind of get a waiver to go out there and still get some training. So it ended up 
honestly working for the best because we had an opportunity in some of that weather to just do some pattern laps and knock off any rest before uh, we got any tasking at all or any kind of inkling that we might have tasking later. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, you know, kind of give you an idea from the duty brief, like we said, we were kind of mitigating the winds and we, uh, we went through and pulled up the, um, the Noah buoys and we started going around the AOR and saying, okay, yep. Um, the sea state looks like it's pretty far up. You know, we're, we're talking at least 10 footers pretty much everywhere except for one little region over here, like pretty far south of, uh, of Nova Scotia and far east from, uh, from Cape Cod, where they're showing like 27 footers right now. So we literally said, oh, hopefully we don't have to go out there. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, only, only place in the AR we've really got to worry about for some, you know, just disgusting sea state. Mm. Um, and it ended up that was almost uh, not quite the bullseye for, for where that, uh, that vessel had its trouble, but, uh, but certainly close enough um, to, to count. So we uh, were doing our training flight. We uh, knocked out a bunch of stuff and we were getting ready to call it quits for the evening. Uh, I think we had one or two more laps left in the pattern. And uh, we actually heard, I believe our, our ODO reach out to a 144 that was actually airborne at the same time um, and say, hey, you know, Ops is requesting that you land and refuel. There may be a case that's brewing. There's been a, a vessel fire, um, you know, 200 miles offshore to the east of Cape Cod. Mm -hmm. um, they don't know if they're sending anybody yet, but they might. So they kind of want to get you prepped. So that's kind of what we heard. And then we started talking at the crew. Well, if the 144 is going out there, you know, it, potential for us having to go out there as well is probably fairly high. So right as we were starting to discuss kind of what our plan would be, um, the ODO reached out to us as well and said, hey, yep, Ops is requesting that you guys land as well. Um, no official tasking, but they want you to, to max bag on your gas and then kind of talk about how you would, you know, figure out this case if they officially decide to go and, and give tasking. Uh, and the backstory, again, that, that we got was that there was a, a vessel fire. Um, I believe they told us there were about 30 people on board. So we knew it was a significant number of folks and over 200 miles offshore. Um, so yeah. we had that to go on initially. Is that a, um, uh, well, I mean, Adam, you probably know best because you went down to the boat, but uh, it's like a fishing boat or is that a, what kind of boat so was it? It was a, a scallop factory um, vessel. I believe they, they harvest the scallops on site and then they, um, kind of freeze them, flash freeze them there um, on the vessel itself. So that, that kind of accounted for why it was um, such a large vessel with so many people on board at the same time. Gotcha. That's, yeah. And then uh, what about you, Brian? So obviously duty crews told the land fuel up. Did you just get a, were you at home, got a call or something? I was actually here uh, with XO knocking out one of his uh, AC syllabus flights. So we had flown uh, that evening as well. Uh, once we had landed, I guess Ops was here a little bit late working on, I don't know, OERs or something. And he gave us the call and said, hey, would you guys mind sticking around? We got this case that might be brewing. And uh, with the number of people that they were reporting, uh, we we were thinking that we might have to send two helicopters out there. So XO and I headed up to uh, flight planning with Ops. And we kind of, while Travis was uh, and Craig were still flying, started to game plan, like how we wanted to attack the case. Um some different options as far as, you know, what would give us the best on-scene time in terms of do we recover back here, do we recover up in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, and some of our options. So we, we started game planning pretty early. We never really did a formal uh, brief between the two crews, um, but the plan was that the second helicopter would, if we did go, would, would launch an hour after uh, the ready crew, uh, which is pretty much what happened. I think we saw each other briefly in maintenance control and, and kind of... Uh, did the high five and, and had a, a quick little brief, but um, yeah, that's kind of how, how that went down. Uh, just, just for my own uh, essay guys, where, um, where was this case again? Like how you were equidistant from, I'm assuming Yarmouth, Nova Scotia and Cape Cod. Uh, where exactly were you at? Yeah, so it was about 206 miles directly east of Cape Cod, which put us about 135, 125 miles south of Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Okay. And then in terms of your range in the 60, what, what do you guys usually feel uh, comfy going out to uh, for case-wise? Like how far offshore? Uh, I think for most 60 pilots, like 250s, maybe the magic number. Uh, I've done some cases a little bit further than that, but I think 250 really starts to set some bells and alarms off in terms of uh, flight planning and fuel planning and stuff like that. Okay. So you're kind of out there in the middle of nowhere for that one. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Um, so Travis, you guys, uh, you, you said you packed your bags, uh, kind of max gas the 60, get ready to go. Is this, um, 
I mean, I guess you guys fly with a, a pump and litter all the time, right? Any other like extra stuff you guys took other than a bunch of fuel? Yeah, absolutely. So um, because of the number of people that were reported as being on board, we knew it was going to be somewhere in the range of 30. So we had a long conversation trying to decide, hey, you know, with the range we're going to have to travel to get to scene and the expected sea state, we knew that, and, and the number of survivors that uh, we were potentially going to have to pluck off, off board that vessel, um, we knew it was going to be a long time that we have to stay on station and a long transit there and back, even if we were to recover in Nova Scotia, which was the closest point of land from the last reported position of the vessel. So we were trying to find that, that sweet spot balance between um, making sure we had all the gear while taking no unnecessary gear so that we could you know, max up every little bit of, uh, of weight savings um, to, to better our fuel burn, honestly. So we talked about whether, you know, because it was the best of taking on water, typically we'd bring a second pump uh, besides the, the one standard one that we keep on there all the time. And that just is uh, is an insurance policy in case a single pump isn't really keeping up with the rate the water is coming on board. Um, or if we deploy the first pump and for whatever reason, there's some kind of a malfunction with it. We don't find that out 200 miles offshore with no backup plan besides having to uh, you know watch that, that boat sink beneath the waves. So what we decided to do ultimately was to kind of hedge our bets. We didn't want to go 200 miles um, you know offshore with two pumps and uh, no mass rescue raft and find 30 people floating in the water and, and just bubbles where the ship used to be. Um, so we said we'll take our standard pump and then we'll also bring a mass rescue raft so that we can have the ability to kind of respond regardless of what we find once we actually get out there and know that the second aircraft from behind us would have a similar capability. Um, so between the two of us, we'd be kind of covering as many bases as possible. But I know we were talking, I mean, between the pilots and I, we were leaving helmet bags, we were leaving uh, we were taking individual MBG cases out of the Pelican case that usually house them to try and make sure we had literally every single ounce of savings uh, for weight that we possibly could. What are you guys, 65 pilots up there? It actually sounds it, like I sure felt do. like it. I give you guys, uh, you know, <laughs> I'd hit that twice. I figured that was like, you know, six ounces in the bladder was going to be at least two extra miles of range over like a seven hour case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, Adam and uh, Phil, what, what were you guys thinking, uh, you know, here at the beginning before you launched? Uh, anything specific you were trying to grab or, or talking about? Yeah, I mean, one of the first things I wanted to grab was that uh, Air Cruisers 20, that mass casualty raft. Mm -hmm. um, I, my intentions was we were going to get there and start plugging people out of the water. So that was one of the first things I was like, right, I guess we're grabbing this thing. And, and after putting my hands on it, remembering how heavy it was, we <laughs> had to get a few people to carry it out yeah. to the aircraft. Mm -hmm. uh, and the heavy weather bag. We had yeah. to remember that because that was something that we typically didn't carry with us. So, What's the heavy weather bag? I'm not familiar. So the heavy weather bag has um, a series of uh, weight bags that are like tied to each other to make oh, okay. it a little bit heavier. It's like 15 pounds or so. And then there's two trail lines in there, two 105s that are in there that we can put together and use for extra length. And, you know, depending on the what, uh, what we were hovering at to be able to do our uh, recoveries. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, does yep. the, the, maybe this is a sign of my ignorance, but uh, the cost has some of this equipment, right? Like, do they carry mass casualty rafts or pumps? Or I think they have pumps that they can drop, right? Yep, I believe they do. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. And uh, Brian, did you guys know this is like how, oh, <clears throat> how Travis and uh, and the crew were, were outfitting the 3-2? Uh, the were you guys kind of taking notes? Yeah, we, we did. That was, you know, one of the things that we did talk about. Um, we, as my crew discussed, bringing, possibly bringing an extra swimmer with us. Um, we also ended up bringing the mask uh, rescue operations raft. And then um, we knew that Coast Guard, or, uh, Canadian assets had been launched. So between the five assets that were out there, uh, again, we kind of hedged our bets and figured that each one would pretty much have a pump or multiple. So uh, we only brought our standard pump. We didn't bring an extra pump. But we did bring the heavy weather bag. That was definitely uh, something that we wanted to have with us. So yeah, so we're headed out. What was post post night flight? What nine ten o'clock at night? Is that what what time we're thinking? Yeah, right around that time. Uh, I think we started planning around seven or eight, and then uh, Travis's crew launched at nine, and then we launched around ten o'clock. Sweet. All right. Yeah. So what what do we got next, guys? What uh, paint us the picture when you get out there or how the transit out was. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, honestly, um, again, we got that initial notification and it wasn't that you guys are definitely going. It was just kind of, Hey, we want you to get ready to go in case they need us. But like right. you mentioned before, it was a Canadian flag vessel that was uh, kind of 
right in between uh, the U.S. and Canadian areas where, where we'd send our, our you know, forces out there to help out. So it was kind of Canada running the show and then with the U.S. being ready to assist if required. And after we kind of had an opportunity to, to talk through what our plan would be, I think we split up uh, our crew for maybe at, at least five minutes at most, probably 15 minutes before they gave us the official word, hey, we, we are launching you. They are requesting uh, assistance mm-hmm. just in case, in addition to the cormorants uh, that were being you know, diverted to, to go out there, as well as, as the uh, Canadian C-130 that was being launched. So the, uh, the 144 spun up uh, to be our, our top cover as we were going out there. And then our crew, um, we were looking at weather, and we knew, again, C-State was going to be there. There was a uh, kind of a, a, like, I don't want to say storm system, but a weather system that was uh, kind of right in that area that was churning everything up. So as we were looking at, you know, the altitudes and the, the speeds and how we wanted to kind of get out there um, in a way that would allow us to sip some more gas and spend more time hoisting on scene, um, we noticed about 6,000 feet was probably going to be our most beneficial altitude. Um, but there was also some moderate icing that was reported out there in the vicinity of where the vessel was. But fortunately, we had the one benefit of um, those strong winds that were, were churning up those seas were going to be a strong tailwind for us going out there mm-hmm. and they were going to continue to push that weather system. So we, we elected to, uh, to climb up to 6,000 feet, um, enjoy the advantage of that fuel burn and trust that as we got a little bit closer to seeing that, uh, that moderate icing would continue to push east as well and not be a factor for us, even if it was going to be fairly close. Um, and just to provide a little context as well, as far as, you know, Brian mentioned earlier that we were looking at kind of a whole bunch of different iterations of where we would take off from, where we would recover at, in order to give us the, the best combination of, uh, of time on scene and, and fuel reserves uh, after we landed. I mean, I, I know our crew was, was figuring out, hey, we leave Cape Cod, we come home to Cape Cod. We leave Cape Cod, we refuel in Nantucket, and we go out and we recover in Nantucket. Mm-hmm. And then we have every combination thereof that included, hey, we leave here, and then we recover in Yarmouth, which was going to give us our, our best possible option, even though it was going to be recovering um, in, in a foreign country. Um, and part of the discussion that, that impacted that was we knew that the vessel had a fire, we had received reports that it was either restricting its ability to maneuver or completely dead in the water. Um, and we knew that we had those very strong uh, winds coming from the west that were potentially going to cause that vessel to drift even further away from, from where uh, we would be launching from. So that kind of influenced our decision-making to say, hey, we are just going to go right from Cape Cod, proceed direct to scene, as opposed to trying to you know, get 15 extra minutes of gas by, by landing and, and doing a cold refuel at another airfield a little bit further to the east than, uh, than where our air station is located because we didn't want to lose that time um, in case that vessel did go down and then really receive no gain if it continued to drift further and further away from us. So that was kind of the mental calculus that was going on and uh, why we elected to do what we did. So we transited out to uh, seeing about 6,000 feet. We had, uh, I think we had the ECS off pretty mm-hmm. much the entire time trying to, uh, again, find ways to sip gas uh, in whatever way we could. Uh, we turned the roll coupler on. We didn't turn on an altitude hold so that we could continue to, to sip gas. We were just riding a torque setting and allowing, you know, altitude to fluctuate a little bit, but to uh, prevent those um, kind of engine power manipulation that would uh, cost us an extra pound of gas here and there that would be multiplied over, you know, several hours of flight time. So um, that was kind of what was happening as we were going out. And uh, Craig Campbell was running comms for us. So I'll let him talk a little bit about some of the uh, kind of what we were hearing on the radio, the chatter as we were getting a little bit closer to scene there and, and more of a picture started to form as to kind of what our role was going to be and what the, uh, the vessel state was. Great. Yeah. yeah. Craig, can you talk about like who, who's first on scene or sounds like the reporting source was uh, through Canada and was it, was it the Casa making out there first or the Cormorants or one thirties or. I, I mean, I think Canada was out there first, um, but uh, the one forty four launched before us. So they were, they were on their way in their comms a little better than ours. Um, so yeah, we launched and yeah, we we're in route, just trying to reach out to them. Um, they couldn't hear us, but the 144 started reaching out to us and relaying, uh, just essentially when we're going to be on scene mm-hmm. and I, we were trying to pull info from them too. And, uh, it's just funny, the series of events, um, you know, we we're on our way out there, you know, we originally heard from the, the, the boat captain relayed that uh, he didn't want any assistance. Like fire was out and like, they're good to go. Mm-hmm. And then just, you know, it was a long commute. So we had a long time listening to radio and it just slowly started escalating. Um, boat captain was saying like, okay, like maybe we'll take a pump or two, you know, we're starting to take on some water. Yeah. And then finally he's like, okay, yeah, we need to get people off this boat. Um, so, I mean, either way we were trucking out there, but uh, it definitely escalated once, you know, once we finally had comms with them. 
Yeah. yeah. And so you're talking to the Casa pretty reliably on the way out. And then uh, do you guys have presets with Canada or is it easy to, to talk to them? No, they, uh, they passed an air to air. So we were trying to reach out on it. The Casa heard us. So they kind of relayed us uh, information. And uh, eventually we started picking up the C-130, which was pretty much operating as the, I guess, on-scene commander for, mm-hmm. for Canada. Yeah. Well, what did the, uh, what's, I mean, you guys, obviously you got all the way out there. Um, what did the sea state look like from uh, your f- perspective, Phil and uh, Adam? Uh, well, uh, once on scene, um, that, that uh, 154 foot fishing vessel was dancing all over the place. Was it? Um, yeah, it, it was, uh, I mean, it, we're coming in from so high. It didn't look, uh, it didn't look crazy until you got close enough and, and you're trying to measure up next to that boat or uh, hold a position that you realized how much that that thing was really bouncing around. Um, we've seen very, uh, very few or very little footage of the actual case. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what we, what we do see that video just doesn't, doesn't give it justice at all. It's, it's pretty funny. The drastic difference from, uh, being there and looking at it and watching it all go, go down versus, uh, getting that play by play, uh, video, you know? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, are either you guys, uh, have either you guys been out to Astoria and done some heavy seas rescue before? I, I have done the training once. Okay. Nice. For the advanced helicopter rescue school. Is this Phil or Adam? This is Adam. Adam. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. You've gotten out there once. And then how about you, Phil? Uh, no, sir. I never made it to Ahars. Okay. Um, well, when we were out there, um, I remember opening up the cabin door cause at that point we were, we were going to start picking people up and we we're like, I guess we're getting rid of this rack. So we kicked the raft out the door and I have the door open. I'm looking at the seas and I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then of course, in the distance, you can see these parachute flares um, just all over the place. It felt like it was, it was actually pretty cool to see those parachute flares just slowly descending and you can see it kind of lighting up the sky. Oh, did the um, C-130 uh, drop? On the C-1- yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was actually pretty cool to see. And then, uh, of course, we're in the queue to pick people up. Uh, the comrades, they're doing their thing, and we're just kind of waiting, burning off fuel, too. And we're sitting, I don't know, I think it was like seven miles or six miles away or whatever, just trying to burn off fuel to wait for our turn to go in. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, the seas looked, it looked pretty gnarly, but just like um, Adam said, um, it, you could see them from, from that altitude, but when we got pretty close, it was pretty gnarly. It was... Uh, it was bobbing around like a little cork. Yeah, I what, mean what, that boat was like it was right where like the where either at or on the edge of that continental shelf. Yeah, I believe it was like George, George's bank. So, um, you know, you you it was it was pretty good. It was pretty cool. Yeah, what were uh, what do you think the waves were uh, height wise? So this is this is Travis. Uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of funny as we were going out there, we were trying to figure out uh, before we actually got to seeing what the sea state was going to be like, so we could game plan it. And the Canadians obviously were there first and, and we were kind of hearing stuff relayed from the 144 because they had good, good times with them. And, um, the 144 came back just to say, Hey, uh, on scene conditions reported is eight to 10 feet. And I was like, Oh, all right. This is great guys. This is, uh, this isn't as bad as we thought it was, you know, looking at the buoys, this is, we were expecting it to be way worse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I swear right after we were kind of doing this verbal high five in the cabin about how awesome it was that, uh, you know, the on-scene conditions were way better than we expected. They come back with a radio and say, uh, correction, uh, that was passed by the cormorant. That was actually eight to 10 meters. And I don't know who did the, uh, the public <laughs> math, but it's, uh, it's somewhere in the range of 26 to just over 33 feet. So that was a, uh, unfortunate, uh, you know, miscommunication in terms of, uh, of units, units matter. Yeah. So yeah. A little bit of a language barrier. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's really it made funny. a big difference though. Yeah. That's, uh, less high fives. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. They yeah. The high fives just kind of, you know, dissolved. <laughs> yeah as you get on scene is the are the cormorants uh, was it two eventually that came out are, are they plucking people off of the uh the boat or are they picking people off the water where are we at so essentially as we uh, were getting to scene the cormorant had already beaten us there so they had just gotten on scene uh, a little bit ahead of us when we were probably within 10 or 15 miles so not not too long ahead of us and their c-130 was on scene as well so 
Uh, we didn't want to clog up the airspace with that C-130 kind of orbiting to drop those parachute flares like uh, Phil mentioned for the cormorant as they were getting ready to hoist. Mm-hmm. So we kind of offset a couple miles away into a holding pattern, just went to max endurance speed to try and sip some more gas uh, while we kind of waited for our turn. So that's kind of how the, the forces were overlaid. Um, the cormorant delivered a pump, I believe, and then they started picking up uh, people. And from what we found out, they were taking, oh, yeah, they, they put two of their Sartex down. Um, and that I can only imagine in retrospect, like knowing what we know now about how challenging it was to hoist to, uh, you know, with a trail line to other people that were tending it down on that vessel to an established hoisting area. I cannot fathom how they were able to successfully get um, those two Sartex down. Because mm-hmm. I, I, from the conversations I've had, um, with some of the other folks that have, have talked to the aircraft commanders, it, it sounded like they did not use a trail line for at least the very first StarTech that went down. And uh, my understanding was that they were beaten up a little bit due to the extreme sea state and the, the challenge of, of the way the vessel was uh, was located. It was kind of port beam uh, into the wind, which was was non-standard. And we had actually had a conversation before we left. We pulled up um, a Google images of, of the vessel and we said, okay, guys, um, this is what we're going to deal with if we end up having to go. The bow looks very clear. Um, this is going to be our hoisting area. The stern is completely fouled. It's essentially a non-starter. There's just so much stuff back there. They had multiple cranes and just all kinds of stuff that was uh, going to make it extremely, extremely, extremely challenging mm-hmm. um, to the point where it almost wasn't even worth it. So we said, okay, this is going to be our spot at the bow, and then don't even worry about anything, um, you know, stern of that. And when we got on scene, we saw that uh, it was taking, you know, 40-knot winds with its port side um, into the wind. And so that bow, we either would have had to do one of two things, take a 40 knot tailwind, which even in the 60s is not the ideal place to be when you're trying to hoist. Right. Uh, or uh, we were going to have to do some left seat hoisting. And the challenge of that would have been that it would have positioned the aircraft right over top of the highest point of the vessel where their mass was. And because of the, the extreme sea state, um, we didn't want to you know, inadvertently share time and space with, uh, with that mass if we kind of sunk as a, a gust of wind fell out and the vessel rose up on some waves. So we said, Hey, uh, what we've got is, uh, is going to be what we've got. And we uh, had the starboard quarter of the vessel, a very, very small, um, you know, clear ish. I, I hesitate to even call it clear. Uh-huh. It was the clearest of a foul hoisting area um, that we would be working to. So that, that was kind of um, the shakedown of what we were looking at and the, the challenges that we were facing. So after the Cormorant put down their two Sartex, um, they started hoisting people via the basket in a trail line. And I believe they were taking two survivors at a time. They were able to take a total of, of I believe, six. Um, and then we heard over the radio that um, they were departing immediately, um, leaving their swimmers behind because they had experienced indications of a, a significant hydraulics emergency. Um, oh, boy. And Yeah, which is never a fun thing. So, again, we went from thinking, hey, we're, we're going to be uh, in the queue. We're going to have some more time to kind of game plan what's going on. And then all of a sudden, uh, we literally heard over the radio the, the you know, words from the C-130 saying, hey, we're going to knock off. We're going to follow the Cormorant um, because they're telling us they might have to ditch on their way back to Nova Scotia, which um, very few times have I had the hair on the back of my neck rise up during a star case. Uh, and, and this was certainly uh, plenty of opportunity with the case we had alone, let alone adding the additional potential complication of having another large aircraft uh, with a large crew um, going in the water over 100 miles uh, from, from any of the closest shores. Yeah, that's that's pretty terrifying. I'm uh, you're talking about the the hoisting area. I found the video on the Facebook page. It's pretty crazy um, managing that hoist cable, uh, Phil, with like the boat moving up and down like that. looks looks pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so when we were delivering the pump and we put the uh, trail line down, so the trail line was down holding, and then of course that trail line was sailing like good fifty feet, you know, behind us. So just imagine you would think that that trail line on a normal training flight, that trail line is, you know, plumb right underneath us. This trail line was sailing way behind us. Mm-hmm. So, it, and we're doing this at 90 feet. We briefed it at 90 feet. And, you know, so trying to get that on there was, was kind of difficult for the first time. I'm, I've never trained in, you know, in that type of sea state like that. So right. um, it was a little difficult, but over time it got easier and easier. Uh, we had to deliver that trail line multiple times uh, because either the trail line either got, you know, the quick link broke off or, you know, we would, um, we would deliver the trail line and we would pick up a survivor and then we would back away. And then the trail line that they had in their hand, they would have to let go of it. And then that would get dragged into the water. 
So I'm bringing the basket in and then realizing the trail line sailing behind me and I got to, you know, disconnect it and pull it all in and then re, you know, re-deliver it again. So yeah, it was, it was crazy. And toward the end, I think we briefed that we were going to do our, our hoisting altitude at 60 feet just so that we wouldn't yank that trail line off deck when we were just, you know, slowly back and left. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite difficult. And, and with the winds and everything else, you know, um, making sure that that when I took the load and the basket wouldn't swing toward the vessel, I, I did it to where the basket would swing away from the vessel. So that, that kind of made it a little bit easier. Yeah, on it. So a little bit plumb, I just kind of had it to where it wasn't that quite plumb. It was, you know, the basket would swing away. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of motion, just the helicopter and the boat moving around, um, do, doing their dance. Right. But yeah, I mean, a, a 90 foot hoist with a 105 foot trail line doesn't give you a lot of, uh, a lot of slop to play with. No, absolutely not. Uh, and of course, you know, the first time you, you get distracted with, with what's going on, at least for me, I was mesmerized on, just how that boat was moving around. I mean, like I said, because earlier with, uh, with it didn't give it justice. I mean, when you're out there sticking your head out the window and it's cold and you're looking at that boat move back and forth, you see all that water rush and it's like, wow, it's like, it's just so much to look at and you're just trying to concentrate. And like I said before, it's like, I always told myself, I was saying to myself, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Let's just try to try to get this the best I could. So, it was, it was pretty so with, with the hoisten, you got, you guys jumped into the hoisten. Um, Adam, did you go down to the boat right away? Sadly, the uh, Cormoran beat us there and got those two StarTechs on board. And with those two StarTechs on board, uh, the crew decided that, uh, that, uh, they, they were uh, handling it, um, sufficiently enough yeah. that we, didn't, that we didn't need to, uh, put anybody else in uh, harm's way and trying to get them on that vessel. Um, uh, yeah, just the, the, uh, movement of the vessel, the wind tossing us around, we felt, uh, the Sartex had it covered and, uh, and we just let them go ahead and, and, um, deal with the survivors or get them to us. Um, and, and they managed it just fine. Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, sure that that must've been tough to, especially cause that's what you're trained to do is go down there. But, um, I'm assuming that Phil got a lot of help from you hanging out there too, moving the baskets around and, and just helping generally, uh, call waves or, or were you guys, uh, trying to call out waves and that kind of stuff? Definitely. I was definitely by his side the whole time, uh, from the, from the get go, uh, um, uh, setting everything up and, uh, mm-hmm. sticking my head out the window. I was laying on the deck gunner's belt on and, and, uh, I just got to be another set of eyes back there. Um, calling out snag hazards or, um, uh, letting the crew know what was going on with the back of the boat. Um, how people were lined up, ready to be next in line to get in the basket, um, slip and falls on deck. People are heading to, to, you know, their turn to hop in the basket and get hoisted into the helicopter. And they're, they're just, they're, um, slipping, you know, they're slipping and sliding all over that deck and, mm-hmm. and popping back up, you know, or holding position a little bit longer, you know, just trying to keep everybody informed. We had, a uh, our co-pilot, Mr. Campbell, was there calling out waves for us, giving us a countdown when the uh, when the big set would roll through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we if we got those twenty six or thirty footers, he seen it coming and and gave us a countdown. And and uh, uh, more than once, that countdown he was giving us as we were moving in for the hoist. Um, uh, scary, yeah. but uh, it, it worked out just fine. Yeah, for sure. So you you. Uh you guys obviously doing a lot of work in the back. How, how was the workload up front? Nice and easy flying up there, Travis and uh, Craig. (laughs) Well, yeah, the the easiest part is when the conditions are so bad, it's harder to tell that I'm just a bad pilot. There we go. (laughs) I can easily blame it on the environmentals, but yeah, I'll take time to to brag on uh, both the folks in the cabin. I mean, Phil and Adam both did an absolutely incredible job in the most extreme conditions I've ever seen. I know we talked a little about how that boat was moving, but I, I'm telling you, like I have never seen a boat that size uh, move around in, in the seas like that. Like mm-hmm. it's just something that's it's absolutely impossible to describe until you see it. That much steel that just looks like it's totally at the mercy of these waves. I mean, rolling side to side, pitching up and down, and then essentially like you'd be over top of the vessel, and then it would hit a wave, and the waves weren't exactly in predictable sets all the time, so you'd sit there and you'd do your best to, to figure out when the next big one was coming and another one would come out of nowhere and it would hit the bow and the bow starts surfing down a wave as the stern's moving away. 
and uh, just all kinds of, of, of challenges there that uh, we had to figure out on the fly and try and make as safe as possible. And I, I remember being very grateful that we were the second um, folks to go hoist from, from that hoisting area in those conditions because I think, but for knowing that it was possible, uh, I don't know that, I, I certainly don't know if I would have attempted it uh, without a, a much longer conversation because um, it was like scary and dangerous to the point that I was concerned that we were going to hurt or, or kill somebody trying to save them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, looking back, that, that vessel sank. And, uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not grateful that vessel sank, but part of it in terms of the risk gain calculus that, that we had to go through, it was good to know that that vessel was, was not going to be seaworthy. And it's not one of those cases where you try this max effort, it doesn't go your way. And then the vessel is still floating the next day and everyone would have been fine. So um, I feel like that was something that was definitely in the forefront of my mind. Um, And, and kind of like we mentioned with, with Adam in the back, even though um, we didn't, we elected not to put him down just because of how, how, how much risk was going to be involved with that process. Um, And the fact that we had those, those two trained folks down there already that the cormorant had to leave behind They they didn't intend to that hydraulics emergency. um, They couldn't stick around. I mean, for them, it was essentially a land as soon as possible. Uh, equivalent, like a, a very, very bad EP that they would only see in a simulator environment. They were getting in real life uh, over 100 miles offshore on a, on a, on a big case. So um, Adam, you know, stepped up to the challenge and, and was 100% like another flight mechanic in the back. I mean, at one point, uh, I believe he called a hold after a, a cable became entangled while we were on deck. And between Adam and Phil, um, we were able to, to get that disentangled before it came under tension and snapped back uh, into the rotor system or just, you know, parted uh, the hook portion. Mm-hmm. where we would have been uh, out of the hydraulic wasting game. Um, so that coordination, that, that communication stance that happened in the back is, is something that's, that's absolutely non-standard and was absolutely vital to allow us to effectively and as safely as possible in those conditions um, get, get the people off that we did. Yeah, um, did. Like Bill mentioned, uh, we had a bunch of uh, trail lines that we brought with us. We brought extras. And uh, I think we either had four, we either had five or six total and um, between the weak link parting under, you know, 300 pounds of, of pressure at some point um, or the, the delivering of the, uh, the dewatering pump at the beginning, we had worked ourselves down to just one last trail line. So like you mentioned, 105 feet long and, and 30 foot waves from 90 feet, um, that was going to give us the best, you know, safety margin away from that pitching and rolling vessel. Uh, but we said, hey, team, you know, we've got one left and then we're going to be out of the game here and there's still a lot of people to get off. So um, are we comfortable coming down lower? Mm-hmm. where we're you know, much closer to those obstacles, much closer to those rear cranes and below the uh, overall height of the, uh, the vessel itself. And everyone said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And that's when we shifted from, uh, from 90 feet to, to 60 feet. And honestly, it was, it was easier hoisting, but no margin for error at that point, unfortunately. Yeah. What kind of, um, for, for you and, and for Phil for this one too, what kind of conning commands, just to give an idea of how, how this boat was moving, were you guys using a lot of easies and holds or were you doing a whole bunch of you know, left 50 for forward 20. So honestly, um, the, the getting the trail line on board was the most challenging part. And I'll go first and I'll let Phil kind of, kind of let me know what, what his perspective was. So, um, as the pilot, the trail line deliveries were the most challenging because as Phil alluded to, I mean, there was conversation once like, Hey, I, I'm concerned that this trail line is going to get fouled in our, our tail rotor system because it was sailing so far aft. Wow. I mean, it was all the way out behind our stabilator pretty much. And, you know, we look at the hoist footage afterwards, and it looks like that trail line forms almost like a perfect you know, C shape uh, because of the, the extreme winds there. Yeah, what and were the winds um, again, Travis? It was about 40 knots sustained and gusting up as, uh, as high as 60. Okay, yeah. That's serious. Sorry, yeah, so it was, Oh, yeah, they were, they were significant. So um, in order to kind of get the trail line uh, on deck, even with the extra weight bag that we had on there, uh, on that starboard quarter where the hoisting area was, I mean, we had the aircraft positioned essentially over on the, the port quarter. Um, and that put, you know, where the pilot seat is well beyond that. So um, the only thing we had going as far as the environmentals went was the illumination was, was actually really good. And we were getting close to seeing there was a, a large moon that, that rose. So I was actually unaided for that because um, I was just able to get uh, just enough of a horizon um, unaided. And I was so concerned as how the vessel was moving in that sea state that uh, I didn't want to limit my uh, my view anymore by putting those MBGs down. So mm. that uh, that moon illumination definitely, you know, from from my perspective on the piling side, made it uh, a little bit easier um, in some some very challenging environmentals. Awesome. 
So the Cormorant's departed scene. They've got six survivors on board. The C-130 is, uh, is following them home due to their hydraulic problem. Um, and you guys are picking up survivors. How many uh, were you able to pick up? And are you worried about the, the Cormorant or it's kind of just, hey, let's do the SAR case and um, the Canadians can, can work on getting themselves home for now? We were concerned about the Cormorant. Obviously, it was something in the back of our mind is, hey, uh, if they're going to ditch in the water, then that's going to become the, the next most dynamic thing that we're dealing with. Like the vessel is still afloat for now. We're not sure how long that's going to re- remain a reality. Um, but for now, they would be stable. And fortunately, we had uh, Brian's crew coming behind us, um, getting out there to scene, and they actually diverted Brian's crew. And I'll let him speak to this, um, kind of what it felt like kind of falling behind a, an aircraft that might have to, to ditch into the darkness. Yeah, so uh, it was a bit of a roller coaster flight for us, honestly, um, going out there as like one of the last assets on scene. Uh, we start to hear, uh, once we got within range, started hearing about the Cormorant getting set up to do hoist. And, you know, they're like, hey, we're going to we're gonna pick up 16 people. The next helicopter, Travis's helicopter can pick up 10. And at that time, they only wanted to pull off 26. So we were initially hearing things over the radio. We thought we, were, we weren't going to do anything out there. Mm. So, uh we were like, oh man, you know, shucks, we're not going to get to do anything. And then uh, maybe about 20 minutes later, 10 minutes later, we hear the radio call that was pretty urgent from the cormorant saying, hey, we need to depart immediately for a hydraulic malfunction. So we're like, wow, okay, uh, that sounds pretty serious. Um, so now we're like, we're thinking, well, maybe we'll go hoist some people, you know? So now mm-hmm. our spirits are up again. Uh, we finally get on scene maybe a little while later. And uh, we hear from the CASA, who I'll just pause right here and say, uh, the 144 guys did a phenomenal job with the comms all night long. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I know they don't get a lot of love, but they truly were uh, instrumental in coordinating a lot of the things that happened that night. And so, you know, Ned Forrest's crew um, did, a, did a great job with the C-130, getting all, all the info that we needed. But um, they come on the radio and say, hey, you guys need to divert. We're on scene at this time. They said you need to divert and go follow the cormorant in. So when we heard the initial call, we knew it was kind of urgent, but we didn't know the degree to which uh, the malfunction was, like how, how serious it was. Once we got diverted, we knew that they were in pretty bad shape. So we followed them for probably about 20 minutes. Um, so again, we, we're getting asked to be diverted, and we're like, oh, man, I guess we're not going to do anything again mm-hmm. with, with, with regards to the, the fishing vessel. But now it's, it's a more serious tone. You know, th- these guys are talking, actually talking about ditching their aircraft uh, in the ocean. And so, you know, we made best speed to kind of get up behind them until uh, they made it to land. We never physically, uh, or we never really talked to them on the radio. We didn't really want to bother them, but um, we did hear from the C-130 they were very uh, appreciative that we were out there and, and following behind them in case they did have to put it in the water. So yeah. obviously a very serious situation. Um, and not only that, I mean, they had just gone through um, a pretty significant uh, event with getting their swimmers on board. Um, we didn't know this at the time, but I've done a, a couple of hot washes with the Canadian crews and there's a Canadian company that's actually building a, a simulation scenario for their, their hoist, uh, their hoist simulator. But uh, their first insertion of their uh, Sartec, they actually brought him back up because they banged him up so badly uh, without the trail line. The guy ended up having a concussion, a broken rib, and uh, and some significant lacerations on his body. So it was a very violent, very violent uh, insertion on that first one. Obviously, the second one, when the guy went back down, uh, they had to the trail line for the second star tech, but it was, it was no joke hoisting that night for sure. So, wow. you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they're dealing with leaving scene with the emergency. They're leaving their guys on the boat, uh, in, in some pretty rough conditions. So, um, we're just happy to be out there and, and, uh, and follow them in for a little bit. And then of course the, the, another turn of the roller coaster, we got released and now we're like, Oh, I guess we're maybe going to go hoist some people again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it was, it was a very up and down night for us. A lot of back and forth. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah. So back to to your crew, Travis, and and specifically to you, Phil. How many um, how many people did you pick up? So I picked up. Uh, we picked up eight total. Okay. Eight, eight total people. So that's fourteen out of the thirty-one at that point. I think yeah. if the Cormorant got six. Okay. Public math. It's tough. All right. 
Awesome. Um, and then the plan is to, to recover to Canada, right? You're headed to Yarmouth? Right. So as soon as we picked up eight and we were like, all right, that's, that's what we have. We have enough fuel to make it back safely. We headed back and it felt like the longest flight ever. Mm-hmm. Of course, like I'm exhausted. Um, we're sitting in our seats. And by that time I moved over to the uh, BA seat and you know, of course my legs are like pushed up against the, the seats and everybody's in their Gumby suits trying to get comfortable and but there's hardly any room in there. I, I don't even know what it was like to have 13 people in the cabin on the three nine, but uh, <laughs> eight <laughs> was, was kind of crazy for me. Um, and of course, you know, Adam's like six, four sitting, <laughs> sitting yeah. in there all squished up yeah, legs on top of legs. Um, so we're, we're heading back and, uh, we finally make it and I can see land and I'm like, Oh, thank God we can make it back. Yeah. And, uh, we land. And of course we see the, we see the Comrade there. We see the, the C one thirty there and, uh, we get out. And of course all those guys are in there, like just like looking at us like saying, thank you. Like, thank you. And they finally get out of the helicopter and we're walking to the airport and, and it's like, Oh man, it's like finally over. Like, Oh my gosh. And at that point, it was like it, it happened, and I don't even—I wasn't really thinking after that. I just wanted to get inside and kind of relax for a hot second. Um, and uh, we get breath. in there, and yeah, take a deep breath. And of course, we get there, and we're invited by a bunch of people, like the—I think it was the Canadian Red Cross, and um, you know the, the people that were there, and uh, it was a good feeling. And everybody was getting looked at, and. And, uh, so get some coffee, you know, that whole thing they had there. So they had, they had food and stuff waiting for us. And what time, so, uh, was this at this it point? Was, it was probably like, I, well, see, I got confused on the time too, because we were one hour ahead of uh-huh. what Eastern standard time was. Okay. So I think it was like four o'clock their time, but three o'clock our time. I gotcha. Or somewhere around there. Yeah. What sometime at night where the brain doesn't really function properly. Doesn't want right. to be awake. Yeah, and at that time, I think because we had that trainer flight, and by the time that we were done flying completely, it was like close to over seven hours of, of flight time. Yeah, that's a long time. So, yeah, that's exhausting. Um, awesome. So you guys are out of there with the three two, and then uh, the three nine. You guys finish your um, like trailing the the Cormorant and, and turn around, and, and you guys uh, get tasked with picking up some more survivors. Yeah, so the timing worked out really well, actually. Uh, by the time we got released from following in the Cormorant, uh, we had a tailwind again, so we got back on team just in time for uh, Travis and cr- Travis's crew to finish up uh, hoisting. And so we moved in, uh, jettisoned our mask rescue operations raft, so there goes $20,000 out the, out the cabin door. But uh, Don't need that. No. Um, we did deliver a pump. The captain requested an, another pump cause he felt, uh, I think he had two or three on board already. And he said that they were keeping up pretty well. Um, and then we just, uh, again, had the, had the advantage of being the third <laughs> helicopter on scene and had seen that it, it had worked uh, before. So we went to the same spot. Mm-hmm. The two, the two star on deck, uh, did a phenomenal job all night, especially with, you know, having the, the foreknowledge or uh, the after knowledge of, of knowing how badly that one guy was, was banged up. They did a phenomenal job getting survivors in the, uh, in the basket one by one. I think we ended up doing a, a total of about 17 hoists um, and recovered 13 people. Uh, I'd say 17 hoists because there were, there were a couple of times where we put the basket on deck and there just wasn't anybody to get in the basket. Uh, my flight mech AMT, for AMT2, Adam Nisky, uh, he's a rock star. We had a quick uh, CRM discussion about how we both didn't feel comfortable with the basket being on deck for an extended period of time mm-hmm. in the conditions, and uh, we pulled it off. So we, we ended up doing a couple extra hoists, uh, pulled the trail line off a couple couple times, and like Travis said, I totally agree. The hardest part of the night, I think, was just getting those trail lines on deck because you had to be so far forward of the boat, and you, know, you risk going lost target, which is almost, embarrassing to say on a 143 foot vessel but but i mean we really were that far far forward yeah uh that's i'm a big yeah i'm a big proponent of the hud so i don't know how uh travis did all his toys unaided but 
having the <laughs> I think he might I think he might have had his, his eyes closed for for most of them but um I think I would have uh, yeah having the the HUD up in my right eyeball and just being able to stare at that boat and uh and have all the information that I needed uh all night long was I think real a big a big uh essay tool for me in terms of not crashing the helicopter into the the rapidly uh dynamically moving vessel yeah. again we had our, our co-pilot commander Cowan, uh, both him and I are, are a hearts graduates and, and the stuff that you guys, uh, do teach in those in, in that training is, is invaluable and it works. He was calling waves all night long. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the mass rescue operations raft did prove itself useful when it ended up out in front of the boat or, uh, in front of the helicopter somehow. So XO knew that when that thing disappeared, he knew a big wave was coming uh, so he'd start giving us the countdown and, you know, they usually come in sets of three. So we knew we'd have three big ones and we'd have a little bit of lull where we could pull one or two guys off the deck real quick. But, um, and then our swimmer, again, we, we elected not to deploy our swimmer. And I think probably the right decision having known how bad that Sartek got banged up, but, um, yeah, who was he the was, swimmer? uh, yeah, AST three. Clayton Madelow. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was doing some, uh, some good work in the cabin. As, I mean, as soon as that basket was, was in the cabin, he was bear hugging that guy, ripping him out of the basket. And it wasn't, you know, two, three seconds before that basket was headed right back down towards the boat. Wow. Uh, e- each one of these guys had a Gumby suit, you know, type suit on with, uh, strobe lights on it. So, you know, one thing that we never even thought of, thought of doing that, uh, Madelow was all over was he was cutting everybody's lights off of their suit so that it wasn't blooming our goggles out, you know, in the back of the cabin. So he was doing some really good stuff, keeping that cabin organized, really packing those guys in there. We ended up hoisting, uh, I think 13 guys in like 51 minutes and, uh, and still had some, a little bit of extra gas and some room to, we offered to take the Sartex back with us because the, the Cormorant asked us to bring those guys back and, uh, to their credit, those guys didn't want to get off the boat. They wanted to stay with the boat and make sure the last four guys were, were safe and could get into a life raft if they needed to, if the boat went down. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we, we, uh, just about at bingo, we started heading back and like Phil said, probably, you know, the longest <laughs> 125 miles you fly with, uh, doing some fuel calculations, heading into a headwind. There was reports of, uh, blizzard like conditions in Yarmouth, which was an airport that none of us had ever flown into before. Yep. Uh, and, the plan was uh, when we left those guys on scene since they didn't want to come with us was, you know, they were kind of curious, Hey, when's the next asset going to be out here? And we were like, uh, I don't know. Our, our best guess was, you know, two to four hours. I think the plan was to fly another helicopter crew from Cape Cod with a, with a different Casa up to Yarmouth and take either Travis or my helicopter. But um, the Canadian one C-130 ended up taking all the fuel in Yarmouth. So that, quickly became not an option. Oh, and, that's crazy. Yeah. 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 So the C-130 actually ended up coming back out, um, and flying some cover for us because the, uh, the 144 was getting ready to bingo. And actually the court, the, uh, AC of the Cormorant, uh, had hopped on the C-130 to kind of help out and, and ride back out there because he was obviously concerned about his Sartex. Um, but the C-130 came back out and, and kind of followed us, followed us into Yarmouth and gave us some good gouge on how to get in there. It really wasn't that difficult, but, um, you know, it's nice to have somebody with you there who, who knows, knows the country, knows the airport, stuff like that. Um, but the Sartex, we essentially left them and said, Hey, it's going to be another two to four hours before another helicopter's out here. They were launching another helo out of Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was a Canadian coast guard cutter that was about 80 minutes out. So, uh, they got on scene and they felt comfortable staying on the boat with those guys to make sure that they, they made it through the night at least. That's good. Yeah. I was reading the article about your case and it, it looks like the, uh, that Canadian Coast Guard ship, the Cape Roger, uh, picked up the last guys and the Sartex. I'm wondering if that was after the boat was all the way underwater or, or what? Uh, no, it wasn't actually. They, I think it was around maybe seven or eight in the morning. Uh-huh. Um, so what, let me back up one second. So we landed in Yarmouth and they, they had launched another cormorant uh, out of Newfoundland, like I was saying, yeah. the Cormorant has, the Cormorant has two hoists, two hoist hooks on, or they have a dual hoist on their aircraft. So, 
Um, they used both of their hoists. The first cormorant used both of their hoists because they frayed a cable on that first insertion that I was telling you guys about earlier. Mm-hmm. That was pretty violent. Yeah. And then uh, the second cormorant, after we had left, got on scene. Um, and I believe it was pretty much daylight at that time. Uh, they ended up, they didn't shear hoist, but they parted a hoist cable. And they also had cable rub on another one. Uh, I think when they parted their cable, they had two guys in a basket. The basket ended up going right back on deck, but um, wow. they, were, they, were out of, they were out of the star game at that point. So they tried to recover, you know, the last six guys and were not successful in getting any of them off. So at that point, you know, it's early morning, probably around seven or eight, they decided to um, completely abandon ship. And like it, it hadn't sunk yet. So they, they, uh, Cape Rogers had to launch a small boat and the story of, those guys just getting on that small boat sounded pretty dicey as well, oh, but they, uh, they did get them off and then they, they stuck around. They were on scene for maybe another two hours and they essentially watched the, uh, Atlantic destiny slip beneath the, uh, the ocean there. Yeah. I mean, what a, what an effort you got, what two Canadian helicopters, two coast guard helicopters, a fixed wing from each service and a Canadian coast guard ship all working yeah. together. Yeah, the picture of all the Gumby suits back in Yarmouth is is, is uh, such a cool picture, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I had just a random pilot question for you guys. Um, did you have to call anybody to be able to go land in Canada, or was it just like, ah, we're going to Canada, and we'll figure it out after we land? Uh, so there was I, – I, I didn't call anybody. I don't think Travis did either. But there was a lot of coordination going on behind the scenes. Um, everybody was well aware of, the, of uh, what we were going to do, where we were going. I know Ops was, I don't think he slept that night. I think he was very involved. I don't even know if he went home. I, I never asked him, but I think he was here most of the night and and helped coordinate the effort. Because we had crews coming in. Like I said, we were going to send a third crew up there, and we had another Casa crew come in to potentially fly that crew up to Yarmouth. So, um, yeah, no, we, we didn't we didn't call. I, I guess we made a bad decision, uh, assuming that there would be enough fuel for... <laughs> okay, so... So Craig saying he, he called center on his way in and we, we did talk to center on the way in as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like somebody at the FBO or anything like that, we, we, we didn't, the pilots didn't have any yeah, or contact. file country clearance or anything like that. Yeah. COVID no testing. Yeah. COVID testing. <laughs> hey, we need to do your PCR when you get here. Wow. Uh, it. Yeah. I mean that the story is wild. You know, Craig, we really haven't heard uh, anything from your perspective as the uh, safety yeah. pilot. What were you, uh, what were you looking at or thinking about? I mean, I know it's kind of hard to be sitting left seat and, and not wiggling the sticks, but certainly as important calling waves and all that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my, my big thing when it's out there just back in, uh, Travis up, you know, you know, the controls. I mean, there's, he's trying to stay in line with the vessel. So, you know, the aircraft's pitching to, to kind of keep, keep in line with it, you know, keep the hoist as stable as possible. Um, so really, yeah, just, kind of monitoring, uh, calling altitude, you know, we, we eventually started hoisting at 60 feet and, you know, I know any lower than that and we'll essentially have zero clearance. So backing yeah. up on altitude. Uh, and then a lot of it too was still just, uh, kind of communicating with the SAR techs on deck. Like luckily, uh, I was able to talk to them a little bit, kind of game planned, uh, where the, the best hoisting would be from and, and how they were doing it with the cormorant. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it was pretty gnarly ride. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an invaluable job that you were given to, I mean, having that coordination allows Travis to drive the bus and, uh, Phil to direct the rescue. So, um, good, good job on all you guys. What, what you got, yeah, Shakes? Yeah. I, I don't have any other like real specific questions about the, the case, but I don't know if you guys had any parting shots about like, um, uh, SAR case wisdom or, or stuff not to forget or any like flying tips for the, for the listeners where, whether they're, you know, in flight school or, um, long out of the cockpit. Yeah. A couple, couple things I'll throw out that, uh, that I forgot to mention earlier was, um, you know, when we got out there, we have AHARS, um, which is primarily, you know, swimmer based. So you're either doing, you know, surf rescue stuff or the cliff stuff, but you're at this point, um, not doing any kind of, uh, you know, uh, boat hoisting work in those kind of conditions, um, in a, uh, a, a regular regimented, uh, you know, under instruction way. And so when we got out there in my head, I was thinking this looks like a on steroids, mm-hmm. but I've 
also got a hoist to a boat now. So that's kind of where we started to work as a crew to figure out how do we take some of those lessons learned and make our life a little bit easier in this new environment that we've never tried before. And that's where, you know, the, the calling of waves was something that, that I know AHARS is really preaches because it's really useful in summer work. And it actually really benefited us um, when we were doing the boat hoisting. So it was kind of merging a couple things together uh, and applying it to what you had. So that was one thing that I'll throw out there for, for any listeners. Another one is the conditions were just so, so insanely wild and dynamic um, that I think initially we started kind of chasing our own tail. Like I know as a pilot, like my, my arm was literally sore for four days after, uh, after we got back. Cause I was, I was just choking the cycle like so much and making so much motion and just staying so tight on those controls. And that's, that's absolutely not normal. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, trying to fight against the moving boat, I think what, what ended up working best for us was again, the most challenging part was delivering the trail line. And I think we started to realize, well, the boat is moving, um, with the waves. And so it's at least somewhat predictable. And if we can take away, some of the dynamic movements of the helicopter and allow the boat to come to us, um, we can eliminate at least a couple important variables to make the job easier. So rather than trying to get it directly over top of where we want to be, we might set up just downwind uh, or so the trail line, the bitter end of the trail line is just downwind to where we want it to be and be patient and wait for that boat to take a roll. And then we can have a, a smaller forward motion to get it to within reach of the, uh, the, the crew on deck mm-hmm. um, by trying to get directly over top and then have that boat roll away uh, on one of those 30 footers and then roll back. And now your, your probability of going lost target is much higher. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're, you know, we don't have a lot of margin for error, especially on those later hoists when we we're lower. Um, and the other thing I'll throw out there is, is, is a bet on me for uh, not giving Brian a pass down. He said it was easy for him being the third crew. Um, but, uh, and, and I, I swear I will grab this to my dying day. I remember we were flying out there and we're, we're thinking to ourselves like, man, this is, this is crazy. Uh, I can't believe we just did this thing. Like, I remember my, uh, my peripheral vision, something caught my eye and I looked down, it was a survivor's head sitting by the lower console. And that's how packed that the cabin was. Wow. Mm-hmm. This is, this is insane. Um, that this guy is, is, is jammed all the way up in here. So, um, we were trying to manage a lot of stuff as we were departing scene and we have a bunch of different radios going off from kind of the fixed wing assets and everything. And, and I remember thinking to myself, like, I think I heard Brian call in on one of the radios. And I'm not sure. I thought he said something about like, like looking for information, like what we were hoisting at, you know, any techniques. And, um, and we had a conversation like, I, no, I don't think, I don't think so. I think we're good. Um, and, and by the time we had that conversation, um, you know, we could hear Brian already talking to, uh, the Sartex or the, the master of the vessel. I can't remember who exactly it was, but they had already kind of gotten in their flow into hoisting. And I said, well, at this point we don't want to, we don't want to interrupt them. And, actually work in the same office as Brian. He was, he was busting my chops for when we landed. Like, thanks a lot for all the gouge. We had to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> the third crew out there always. Yeah, that's pretty funny. That is funny. That's oh, wild. We got, we got one more two here as well from, uh, from Phil from the uh, flight next uh, position. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So on the first uh, basket recovery, <laughs> the Sartex had disconnected the, the hook from the basket, which became one of the, one of the, good tools to use in something where those, you know, where the boat would, you know, fall like 30 feet and come back up. Mm -hmm. So they disconnected it. And at that point I couldn't tell that they disconnected it and I was ready to take the load. And then I took the load and then I saw the hook come up with the, with the chem light. And I was like, hold on, (laughs) they disconnected the hook from the basket. Yeah. So I had to bring it back down and then we, we knew that this was what was going to happen. So we anticipated them as soon as they got the basket on deck, they disconnect the hook and that made it easy to where we're not hopping that, that, um, the basket off deck as the boat was rolling. So that was one of the kind of like one of the variables that we had to anticipate and what we learned. So yeah, that seems that like a really it, cool technique, especially if you've got a trail line the whole time. Uh, right. You, so you don't have to work the, the horse as much. Yeah. Right. So that did make it easier for the basket recoveries. Yeah. And so probably they, safer the, for the uh, people getting in the basket because they're not going to get it. Was, it was yeah. absolutely safer. Yeah. And then they would, and then they would, they would pull it in, they would connect it and then we would take the load. So, and I, I was talking to Nisky too. I was like, Hey, did they just connect the hook on you too? And he goes, yeah, it surprised the crap out of me. I was like, we should have probably passed that to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the but, uh, us yeah. lacerated Sartex got the, got the good tips. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was dynamic and it was, it was exciting and scary at the same time. Yeah. An awesome outcome. Everyone home, so all, all the awesome. aircraft and, uh, unfortunately the boat slipped beneath, but 
got everyone off. Yeah. 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 Anybody else got any parting shots over there? Yeah. I, I would just say it really is a miracle that, uh, that nobody got seriously injured that night between the explosions that happened on the, uh, on the vessel. And then the sheer number of hoists that we did of the survivors, um, you know, like Travis said, I mean, we easily could have killed somebody, uh, that night just trying to get them off, off the boat. So just, uh, you know, kudos to, to the mechs, uh, and that gave us a conning command that kind of kept us, uh, kept us safe in a way and away from the vessel and, and also kept the survivors safe coming off. So they, they did an outstanding job. Yeah. yeah, quite the team effort. Absolutely. I know that your skipper was super proud of you. I think he was here for a speed course like a week or two after. And yeah, very, just like humbled, I think, by the awesome work all y- y'all did. Yeah, it was great talking to him. He had he had some great stories to tell about all you guys. Well, um, that, that kind of wraps up all our questions. We uh, we can't thank you guys enough. And it's great to, great to get a whole crew on here talking SAR. I mean, this is kind of why we started this whole podcast. So um, thanks again, guys. And yeah. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we'll we'll catch you later. Y'all fly safe down there.